It goes without saying, kids say and do the darndest things. Even when it's at the expense of their parents, they're often unapologetically quick-witted and happy to explore our world, free from the bounds of adulthood norms. Now, I'm sure that many of us long for those days of childhood innocence, for a time when the problems of today light ahead in some distant future, back when we could still freak our own parents out by the things we did and said. And of course, that presents the question. To the parents out there, have your kids ever done anything that, well, scares you? No, not in an intentional or even a funny way, but in a sense that's truly chilling when it comes right down to it. Perhaps you've caught them, staring off in the distance, pointing out to something or someone that only they can see. Maybe you've overheard them, engrossed in a full-blown conversation when no one else was around. Sound familiar? Well, if it does, rest assured, you're not alone. In fact, there's a theory in parapsychology that claims that children have the keen ability to see the other side, meaning that these eerie childhood quirks might just be paranormal activity. Like I said, it's chilling when you put it that way, especially considering that evidence of this theory can be traced back over a century. Sure, it might be a little hard to believe, but if we look hard enough, we may just find that the proof is out there. So, if you're feeling up to it, why don't we set out and search for answers here by returning to the place we spent most of our time as kids. I'm Courtney Hayes, and you're listening to Haunts. Stay tuned. Before we go any further, I think we need to take a moment to understand why. Why are kids so susceptible to paranormal activity? And for that matter, why are we so sure that they are? Well, as many of us know firsthand, when speaking in terms of paranormal research, assumption and conjecture, unfortunately, just comes with the territory. I mean, the field itself is riddled with theories that are rarely backed by credible evidence or even tested using the scientific method. Now, I'll be honest, when it comes to children, ghosts, and these supposed connections, we're in for more of the same. But still, there are two sides of the aisle here that present equally compelling arguments. Dr. Kim Pererno, for instance, cites that children have a greater sense of awareness than we do as adults, meaning that they're able to perceive and accept external stimuli that you and I would likely not even entertain. Simply put, Kids are not yet bound by the idea that something may or may not exist. So when they encounter something that may seem impossible to us adults, they don't try to explain it away with logic and reason. They just accept it for what it is and move on. Now, at least according to one of my sources, this innate ability that children possess may be an indication that they operate at a higher vibrational frequency, one that's more in line with the spiritual realm then, as they get older, this enhanced consciousness, per se, begins to contract, along with their ability to interact with the great beyond. Of course, this is all well and good, 
from a New Age spiritual point of view. But for my skeptics out there, let's take a look at the psychology behind these claims. According to Dr. Jacqueline Woolley, a professor of psychology at the University of Texas, it's developmentally normal for children to see ghosts, or at least what we would perceive to be ghosts. You see, approximately 30% of children have an imaginary friend. You know, someone they can talk to when no one else is around. A companion who only they can see. Now, of course, from a scientific standpoint, these so-called make-believe playmates have been categorized as a figment of an overactive imagination, something that we grow out of when we begin to fully engage with the material world. And hey, that could be entirely the case. But you have to admit, to see a child fully engrossed in an activity, with a presence of which only they can see, well, it's creepy, regardless of if the presence is imaginary or not. So, in the end, you can't really blame us for thinking that our children are talking to the dead. So then we're left with this. Which of these theories is actually true? Do kids really operate at a higher vibrational frequency, allowing them to pull back the veil and see straight through to the other side? Or could it be that it's all just play pretend? Well, there's really no surefire way to answer these questions. But what we can do is apply both sides of the argument to a series of strange events that occurred back in the 1870s at Brinkley College of Memphis, Tennessee. Up until it was demolished in the early 1970s, Brinkley Female College was a prestigious institution, one that acted as both home and school for dozens of girls from across the Southeast. Back when it was still standing on Fifth Street, there in the heart of Memphis, the building wouldn't have seemed like much beyond an ordinary boarding school. It was a place to learn, and for the most part, that was the experience for both students and staff. Of course, I wouldn't be bringing it up now, if that were true, for every single student. And at least in 13-year-old Clara Robertson's experience, there was something stranger lurking through the halls of Brinkley College. You see, when Clara was a student at Brinkley back in 1871, she began to encounter another school-aged girl who only she could see. These encounters began in February of that year, when Clara found herself alone on one of the top floors of the building. At the time, Clara had been working away at a music lesson, diligently practicing the piano as a haunting melody echoed through the empty halls. That's when she saw her. Right there in front of her eyes, the apparition of a young girl appeared before her. By Clara's best estimate, this girl couldn't have been more than eight years old. And to put it bluntly, this specter was really creepy. Her eyes were sunken in and lifeless. She was wearing a tattered pink dress that was covered in this green slime-like mold. Oh, and according to Clara at least, this child looked more like a skeleton than she did a little girl. I know, the image that comes to mind is truly chilling. But what's even more disturbing is that this girl was almost transparent. Clara could see right through her, and yet there she was. 
Now, for obvious reasons, Clara was frightened. So she ran from the music room, and as she did, the spirit followed. Only disappearing from view when Clara encountered another student. After this initial encounter, Clara began to tell her friends and teachers about the experience. She was scared, and rightfully so, she was looking for comfort. So I hate to say that her teachers and classmates didn't exactly take the situation to heart. In fact, many of her peers poked fun of her in the days following the incident. And for obvious reasons, her teachers felt that there must have been some sort of logical explanation. I mean, even her own father was convinced that this had all been a prank orchestrated by Claire's classmates. That said, these assumptions shifted somewhat when the ghost reappeared two days later. Because this time around, Clara wasn't the only one shaken by the encounter. You see, on this day in particular, Clara had once again been up in the music room. She was accompanied by two friends, and together, the three of them were practicing piano. It was then, almost as if on cue, that the same apparition appeared before Clara and her classmates. The spirit looked exactly as she remembered. Same moldy, tattered pink dress, same lifeless eyes, same startling demeanor that sent all three girls running from the room. A similar occurrence happened a few days later, only this time in front of Clara, as well as one of her teachers. On this occasion, Clara held a full-blown conversation with the spirit, evidently hearing her voice clear as day. On the other hand, Clara's teacher, Miss Boone, could only hear a low mumbling sound that she couldn't quite make out. Now that, of course, only makes sense. I mean, if children really are more susceptible to paranormal activity, then Clara would have been way more open to an interaction with this ghostly child. Whereas Miss Boone, as a full-grown adult, likely would have been more terrified by Clara in her one-sided conversation. After these first few encounters, Brinkley College was abuzz with rumors about a ghost that was supposedly haunting the campus. And eventually, word of these claims made their way back to the school's owners, Mr. and Mrs. Meredith. Now, not unlike Clara's father, the Merediths were under the distinct impression that this alleged paranormal activity had been nothing more than a prank. Only, they took it a step further, launching a full-fledged investigation into this supposed haunt. In the days following, they questioned nearly every student, hoping to find some answers as to who might be masquerading through the school as a ghost. Although these efforts only led to more questions, and all the while poor Clara was still being haunted. In fact, right around the time that Mr. and Mrs. Meredith began accusing their students of the strange activity, Clara once again encountered the spirit out in the schoolyard, and evidently this ghost had some accusations to make of her own. This time around, the girl introduced herself by the name Lizzie, and went on to tell Clara that the school belonged to her by, quote, right, title, and deed. Apparently, Lizzie's family had actually owned the school building during their lives. Oh, and today, the Merediths had no legitimate claim to ownership, a fact that caused Lizzie quite a bit of torment in her afterlife. Scandalous, I know. And Clara, being pure of heart, 
couldn't exactly sit and do nothing with this information. So she told her father, before promptly refusing to return to school. It was at this point that Clara's father felt the need to intervene. Sure, Mr. Robertson wasn't exactly convinced that his daughter was being haunted, but at the same time, her well-being had obviously been affected by whatever was going on. So, in typical spiritualist fashion, he organized a seance. He hired a local spirit medium, invited several neighbors over to act as witnesses, and together they sat around a cloth-covered table and watched as something spectacular happened. You see, Clara reacted to the seance in a rather peculiar way. It was like she was in a trance, but her hand was moving rapidly. It was almost as if she was trying to write something down. So they gave her a blank piece of parchment and something to write with. And before long, Clara was drawing what could really only be described as a treasure map. One that led to an old tree stump with valuables buried beneath it. So this map was obviously hard to believe, but at this point, Mr. Robertson's curiosity was winning out over his skepticism. So once again, he gathered a group of neighbors, and together the men set out in search of treasure. Now, as a quick aside here, one of my favorite things about this specific era in history is the overall excitement surrounding claims of paranormal activity. In this case, for example, word of Mr. Robertson's ghostly treasure hunt spread through Memphis like wildfire, as a large crowd of spectators gathered outside of Brinkley College. In fact, according to M.J. Wayland, who wrote the book 50 Real American Ghost Stories, thousands of curious onlookers were waiting outside the school when Mr. Robertson and the dig team arrived, each of whom were hoping to catch a glimpse of Lizzie's ghost or her treasure. So, by now you guys are probably wondering, what exactly did this buried treasure hold? I mean, it would have to be pretty good to get the entire town of Memphis up in a frenzy, right? Well, at least according to Lizzie's spirit, the valuables concealed below the tree stump included thousands in coins, jewelry, and diamonds, as well as the title papers to the estate. Meaning that if the treasure was found, the contents would prove her claim that the Merediths didn't own the property in the slightest. Now, it likely goes without saying that Mr. and Mrs. Meredith weren't thrilled by the scrutiny that they had been under. But given the public interest that this case had garnered, there really wasn't anything they could do aside from waiting to see what was found. So over the span of two days, the city of Memphis watched in awe as Mr. Robertson and his companions worked to excavate a massive tree stump from the school grounds. I'm sure you can imagine the anticipation as spectators waited for the stump to be removed. But once it was, they were disappointed to find nothing but the rubbled remains of an old building. It was all brick and no treasure. Meanwhile, back at the Robertson residence, Clara was once again startled by a visit from Lizzie's spirit. I guess she too had been disappointed by the lack of evidence turned up at the dig site, so she had once again gone to Clara, demanding that she go back to the school and look for the treasure herself. Now, I won't lie to you, 
The remainder of the story has a flair for the dramatics. So for the sake of brevity, I'll try to keep things simple. That said, Clara Robertson did in fact return to Brinkley College amidst the excitement. And as she began to dig through the rubble, she quickly discovered what it is they had all been searching for. A glass jar covered in mold and decay containing what looked to be jewels, several bags of money, and of course, a large yellow envelope. So following this discovery, Clara actually fainted. Whether that was due to excitement or some sort of spiritual possession still remains to be seen. But in any event, it was Mr. Robertson who pulled the jar from the rubble. Obviously, it was a chaotic scene, but at some point during the mayhem, Mr. Robertson was pulled aside by spirit medium Mary Norris, who had specific instructions from Lizzie not to open the jar for 60 days. Now, I'll be honest, I'm not entirely sure what the reasoning was for this, but the delay did give Clara the opportunity to recover from her fainting spell and in turn allowed the city of Memphis to organize a public event for the jar's grand opening. For just $1 a pop, spectators could buy a ticket to watch as the jar was open for the first time. And for obvious reasons, those tickets sold out pretty quickly. So you can imagine the disappointment when it was announced a few days before the show that the jar had been stolen from the Robertson residence. It was an unfortunate and highly traumatic incident. So if you're not particularly interested in hearing about the graphic nature of these events, you may want to skip ahead about 30 seconds. Because, apparently, just days before the jar was meant to be opened, Mr. Robertson was attacked in his backyard by four men wielding a gun. Evidently, they were demanding to know where the jar was being kept, and after beating an answer out of Mr. Robertson, they stole the treasure and fled. I know, this is a devastating end to an otherwise incredible story. But even still, at least a few answers were brought to the surface alongside that mysterious jar. You see, somewhere along the way, it was discovered that the school building was once the home of Winston J. Davey, who just so happened to have a daughter named Lizzie. Upon further investigation, it seemed that Lizzie had actually died in the home back in 1861. Then, in the days that followed, she was buried in her favorite pink dress. So, even though we'll probably never know what was concealed within the jar, it does sound like there was at least some legitimacy behind Clara's claims. So, in the end, this legend became a coveted piece of Tennessee lore. In fact, after this whole ordeal came to a close, Clara Robertson went on to have a successful career as a spirit medium. And from that point forward, this spirit was affectionately known by the name Pink Lizzie, thanks to the pink dress she is said to be wearing. So now that it's all said and done, I guess that the loose ends of this story have been nicely tied into a bow. Well, that is aside from the overarching question. Is this legend truly evidence of the paranormal? Or could it be that this was all the result of a child's overactive imagination? Like I said at the top of the episode, there's no surefire way to answer that question. But while we're on the topic, I'd like to read you a quote from M.J. Whalen's book, 
which I'll have linked in today's show notes. Quote, If this ghost story was just the figment of Clara's imagination, how did she know about the Davy family and about the death of their daughter, Lizzie? More importantly, how did she know the family's secret, that Lizzie was buried in her favorite pink dress? This episode of Haunts was written and produced by me, Courtney Hayes. If you've been enjoying the show so far, I would greatly appreciate it if you could leave us a review. A lot of work goes into each episode, and supporting the show in this way really helps us reach more listeners each week. It's entirely free and takes about 30 seconds, and it would genuinely mean the world to me. Also, if you're interested in learning more about today's topic, I greatly encourage you to check out the show notes section on our website at hauntscast.com. This is the location where I share my sources and provide any visual aid that may be referenced during the show. Finally, I would love to connect with you online. You can find me on Instagram at hauntscast, or you can join our email list for updates about the show. Thank you again for listening, and until next time, happy haunting. As the moonlight pierces through the dark, paranormal enthusiast and best friends, Farah and Courtney venture deep into the woods, armed with flashlights and a sense of adventure. Farah, are you sure this is a good idea? Sure, I'm sure. We're paranormal investigators. We're not scared of any ghosts. What was that? Uh, probably some animals. Oh my God. My flashlight is going out. Following the chilling sounds, the two stumble upon an abandoned and haunted building, its dark silhouette looming over them. Look, there it is. The abandoned radio station. It's supposed to be mad haunted. Let's be careful. We don't know what's inside. Wow, look at this place. A long growl is heard coming from behind the girls. They turn around slowly, and to their surprise, a zombie is standing in front of them dressed to the nines, wearing a 70s bell-bottom hot pink and purple leisure suit. Who are you pasty-looking females, and what the heck are you doing in here? Who are you calling pasty? Nice suit. Did you raid Barry Manilow's wardrobe, or did John Travolta have a yard sale? Uh, sorry about that. We didn't mean any harm. We're just curious about this place. Curious, huh? Well, come with me. I got something to show you. And as they wander deeper into the building, they uncover vintage studio equipment covered in dust and decay. Farah, you were looking for a new place to set up your podcast, right? And this is it. Whoa, whoa there, sweet cheeks. No, 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 don't worry. We'll make it worth your while. We love the strange and unexplained phenomena, true crime, macabre, and the sinister. And hey, you'd be a great touch to the show. Maybe be an announcer for us as well. Mm, that does sound stellar. I'm in. A few minutes later, 12 seconds later, three weeks later, many months later. Okay, we're rolling. Welcome to Studio Sinister Podcast, where we explore stories that haunt us all. And then we'll go make a fresh kill to celebrate. Dawn. Uh, just kidding. Join Farah, Courtney, and Don the Zombie on the 1st, 10th, and 20th of every month for some rad, chilling stories. And if you piss your pants, that's your problem. Come embrace the haunt. See you soon, Sinister Seekers.